You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion about the history and evolution of waterfowl harvest management, and we are again welcomed by two Two of our developing favorite guests, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. Dale and Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here, Mike. Hey, Mike. When we left off the previous episode, which would be episode number three in this series, we had made it through the 1930s. That was a very significant era for all manner of waterfowl habitat conservation and some fledgling scientific work that we began to undertake because we realized we needed to learn more about this population and how it works and and so then how our harvest regulation efforts inter- intersected with those population dynamics. And it, but, but I guess as a reminder, we also had discussed that in the 30s and partly a reflection of our rather, uh, rather nascent understanding as there was some, uh, some what we might call experimentation, beginning experimentation with harvest regulations, flying by the seat of our pants in some respects. But uh, there were also at that time some some closures for certain species that were sort of the remnant of depressed populations uh, from years years prior. Closed seasons dumped during certain parts of the 30s on wood ducks, ruddy ducks, buffleheads, canvasbacks, and redheads for a couple of years, I believe. Ross's geese and then swans. At some point in the 30s, each of those species, I think, experienced some closures in their in the the hunting of them. Uh, another sort of example of how we began to see some changes in regulations was uh, in 1939. Dale, you pulled together some of this information. I'm kind of borrowing from it. Shooting hours were established. This may have just been the Mississippi flyway, for, but the shooting hours were 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Kind of give people an idea of how things were different back then and how we were thinking about harvest regulations. So we were rolling along with a number of those those efforts in the 30s. Uh, again, a lot of advancements were being made. A lot of ideas were being tossed about and implemented. But then we had something happen in the early 1940s that really um, worldwide upheaval, you might say, in the form, form of World War II, which put pretty much every type of leisure activity and a lot of interest in hunting and conservation on uh, necessarily on the back burner. So it wasn't, in, it wasn't, uh, but, but it wasn't long, however, after our troops returned home after, after the war was won, that we began to see a resurgence in some of that interest. So Dale, I want to start there, talking, building on what I've just kind of introduced there, the efforts that we had made in the 30s, our developing understanding of waterfowl populations, the need for growing our scientific understanding, but then how everything got put on hold uh, until the, the mid 40s. So what was... 
what do you think that time period was like with regard to harvest regulations and then how we transitioned back to a period of more active uh, involvement or more active um, uh, learning? Mike, I think you make a really good point that uh, we were – uh, distracted for good reason uh, by the by World War II. Um, during the 1930s, there were some really substantial conservation initiatives put in place. When you consider uh, establishment of the duck stamp and uh, Pittman-Robertson funds as a form of, of funding, uh, the establishment of Ducks Unlimited is an example. Um, the establishment of the Cooperative Wildlife Research Program in the mid-30s. So all of those initiatives were put in place in the mid-30s, but then were put on hold for about a decade before we really began to realize the value of those really substantial conservation initiatives from the, from the mid-30s. So, Ken, any, uh, any in- insights from you on this, on this period? You, you obviously would have preceded Dale in your involvement in the flyway system. You, you weren't around in the flyway system back in the 40s. I'm not trying to imply that. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I do kind of wonder, as you got into the flyway system, and that's really where we're going to to move here shortly, uh, were any of the discussions, any of those early years, um, th- were any of the guys that you worked with part of that era, uh, the, the post-World War II era, and how we began to really advance our understanding of waterfowl harvest management? Did you ever hear any of those stories? Uh, yeah, I did, and I was fortunate enough to be able to meet some of those early pioneers, and Dale laid out the framework very well. We we laid the foundation for gaining a better understanding of waterfowl, primarily through the wildlife co-op units. But uh, when the war came along, uh, slowed everything down. But as as the GIs came back, and many of them came back to 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 further their education, and a lot of them went through the wildlife co-op units to gain their education and understanding about waterfowl. Uh, and actually, in the 30s, we probably had our first brush with the realization that habitat uh, had a lot to do with, uh, with with waterfowl. When we went through the Dust Bowl, things dried out and uh, duck numbers declined. And so there was some sort of a correlation there. But truthfully, into the 40s, uh, as we began to see the entire wildlife uh, profession expand as as the GIs came home and went back to college, uh, we still operated with the one thing that that we understood, and that was that uh, uh, as seasons were liberal, uh, more ducks were shot, and as more ducks were shot, the numbers in the population surveys declined. And so the only real base of understanding that we had was that uh, we knew that Dead ducks didn't lay eggs and they didn't produce uh, offspring. And so going into the 40s uh, was a time when that was the basis of our understanding that uh, the only thing, and in fact, there were some of the early professionals that commented, the only thing we have control over is is harvest regulation and other things uh, are things that are beyond our control. Uh, obviously, through ultimate research in the years that followed, uh, We've learned a whole lot more, and we know that's not the case. But as we went into the 40s and even on into the 50s and 60s, uh, uh, it was a matter of trying to control harvest in order to ensure sustainability of populations. Ken and, and Dale, I want to get both of your thoughts on on something that, that I'm thinking about here as we hear this discussion. We talk about post-World War II 
and the importance of a lot of those returning veterans, both as waterfowl hunters, uh, and the number of waterfowl hunters grew rapidly after the end of World War II and our hunters returned home, and other people were able to think about leisure activities, even those that may not have been overseas, but we were able to get back to some of those activities. But then also a lot of the people that returned home, a lot of our veterans began to play influential roles in in this profession. So, and I, I, you know, here's a bit of an irony that's just kind of occurring to me uh, to let people know uh, we are recording this particular episode on November 3rd, which happens to be election day. And so, um, yeah, it's just sort of a really neat intersection here that we're talking about World War II and the the work of those uh, of those veterans in this profession. But then also the, you know, I think it's appropriate to pay homage and tribute to those folks because of the the sacrifices they made that actually do give us the freedom to go and, and, and vote on this very day or prior to that. So just a pretty neat intersection of how we're talking about this here, recording this episode on election day. And so probably won't air sometime until December, but nevertheless, it does bear some mention of the important sacrifice and role of all of those people uh, in the freedoms that we enjoy and the, the leisure activities that we now enjoy in the, in the form of waterfowl harvest. So uh, with that impromptu recognition of the importance of those folks, um, what, what can we share with the people that may not have, uh, may not really appreciate that, the pioneering work that some of them did, names uh, such as Johnny Lynch is one of the great names that comes to mind in terms of his pioneering work to use uh, aircraft to survey uh, waterfowl. Uh, my, my reading of the material suggests that some of those thoughts and some of the efforts that were, were, were uh, that are still used today uh, were brought back from our experiences of the war. So, Ken, just speak about that. Some of the pioneers of those early days, their role in the, as you know, service to this country in many forms. So, it's probably an appropriate thing to talk a bit about here. And it's a pleasure to be able to do that. And uh, you mentioned Johnny Lynch. And when I was in graduate school at LSU in the in the mid to late sixties, uh, I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Johnny Lynch because Johnny lived in Lafayette. Louisiana, and and I can remember having lots of discussions uh, uh, in the evenings because he spent a lot of the nights at Rockefeller Refuge where I was doing my research. And uh, the thing that I remember uh, Johnny saying was that uh, while we really and truly were concerned about the long-term plight of waterfowl and that we were regulating harvest and we were curtailing the take of waterfowl, he said, I can make one declaration with a great deal of of, of security that I'm right. And that is that a mallard duck will fly over the grave of the last human being on the face <laughs> of the earth. And uh, uh, again, the insight that he had in terms of, of the resilience of waterfowl was, was amazing. But Johnny was, uh, was one of many people. And I could, uh, I can think of people like Dick Vaught here in our own state of Missouri that Dale and I both, had the pleasure of working with, but I grew up in Northeast Arkansas and I knew a gentleman by the name of David Donaldson, who was the longtime waterfowl biologist for the state of Arkansas. And there is no doubt in my mind that the people from that age class that got their education in the forties took advantage of a lot of the things that had been done in the thirties, uh, were the truly the pioneers across this nation and into Canada that uh, all of us who followed uh, were benefited by riding on their shoulders. Uh, and, and, and they laid the groundwork for us to learn and understand a whole lot more about waterfowl besides just regulating harvest. 
Dale, I want to give you an opportunity to make any comments in that regard as well uh, re- with, res- with respect to that generation uh, and uh, the importance of their work on where we stand today. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that when you read through the literature from the mid to late 40s into the early 50s, um, the pioneers and the professionals that we really respect today were front and center. Uh, Frank Bellrose in those early years, for example, um, the work from uh, Lincoln's uh, work on banding and establishment of the flyways. And so it was during this period of time when people came back from the war, those that didn't uh, go overseas but were still affected by it, um, all of a sudden had an opportunity to apply the information that had been collected over a couple of decades in a really active way. And that's why the, the flyways and the people that were involved at the time are so notable. They had the opportunity to apply information that had been collected Now in the context of more hunters, higher harvest, a greater opportunity to implement um, some of the conservation measures and some of the harvest management measures that uh, were put on hold for a decade or so. Um, It was an interesting era. Uh, I remember my dad talking, for example, he didn't go overseas. He just uh, had graduated from high school by that point in time of how restrictive during the war years um, opportunities to hunt were. He described, uh, you know, one time uh, uh, every week being able to go in and get the five shells he was allotted for the next week. And so the opportunity to harvest birds, the opportunity to um, take advantage uh, was so limited at that period of time. So it's no surprising that by the mid to late 40s, we saw this incredible change in the demand for hunting and on the professional side, the application of what we'd learned a decade and more earlier. Dale and Ken, this this conversation here that we're just having wouldn't be complete without me taking this opportunity on behalf of all of Ducks Unlimited to to say a big thank you uh, to all of our veterans uh, and the families of all of our veterans as well for their service and sacrifice, certainly to preserve our nation's freedoms, but in this particular case also for the many other th- roles that they play in our society uh, and and their connections to the waterfowl conservation enterprise are very uh, long and and very noteworthy, and we thank them for that. Uh, so, w- with that, uh, with that kind of as a useful transition to the nineteen late nineteen forties, we start to enter on the shoulders of many of these people. What is uh, what I, in in my view, could probably be considered the modern era of waterfowl conservation, waterfowl management, because it was in the late nineteen forties that the flyway system, as we've referenced here already becomes established and the flyway system at the time and continuing to this day is considered by many people to be one of the most significant advancements in our continental conservation and management of waterfowl populations. Uh, And we're going to talk a great deal about that. But before we get into that, Dale, I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about harvest regulations in the mid-40s. Are there anything noteworthy there? It's in the late 40s, 47, 48, 49, somewhere in there where we start to see the flyways become established. But what was what was happening in those eras that began to, to mobilize interest in the formalization of these flyways? Well, certainly, and we, we talked about it a little bit briefly before, is that there was um, the Folks that returned from the war, mind you, the relaxing of some of the restrictions that were in place during those war years prompted a substantial increase in the number of hunters and, as a result, harvest. And so there was a period of time there where the the recognition that there needed to be a technical framework and then ultimately an administrative framework 
for establishing regulations uh, was going to be really, really important. And that's why from, oh, the late 40s, uh, 1946 through early 50s, the establishment of the technical framework for waterfowl harvest regulations and so on was so important. Um, I think it's important to understand also uh, that it was during that period of time that we saw some of the dramatic shift from what was viewed as a north to south management of waterfowl to a flyway management system of waterfowl. Um, probably the most notable result of the banding work and the establishment of the flyway concept by Lincoln and others um, uh, during that period of time. So, Dale, that's that's a good reference here, thinking about the long, longitudinal, um, or I'm sorry, the, the latitudinal orientation of how harvest regulations were were implemented in the early years. We spoke on one of the previous episodes about a map, uh, an early map that showed the zonations, the uh, latitudinal zonations uh, across uh, across the U.S. But then I know based on some of your work, you you report here in this in our little outline that I'm looking at that in 1947 that that was the first year in which we began to see regulations implemented on a longitudinal orientation, which begins to cor- uh, correspond to our fl- flyway orientation. And so the other thing that I believe was significant about that is it was the first time that states were allowed to select their individual dates, their season dates within a, a larger framework uh, that's a, that was set by the federal government. Is that is that right? Yes, the, the notable thing during that period of time was that the technical uh, involvement uh, already was in place, and it was already in place in a fairly regional or flyway uh, manner. Um, uh, 1946, the Atlantic Flyway established a, a joint black duck committee, recognizing that the folks in that part of the world were responsible for management of that particular species. Uh, by 1947, um, northern states in the Mississippi Flyway started a team approach to, to their waterfowl problems. And it followed up the uh, same thing in the Central Flyway and the Pacific Flyway, so that there was a recognition technically that we needed to manage waterfowl differently than maybe we had prior to the, the mid-1940s. And that gave rise to the, the flyways, the flyway council system, and by the early 1950s, the establishment of, of a technical as well as an administrative framework for managing waterfowl and waterfowl harvest management. All right. So, Ken, I wanted to get your thoughts on the early years of the flyway system and what went into that. What can you just tell us about the any kind of challenges or consternation or, or you know, flyways have always known, have been known for robust debate. Uh, did that extend back to the form, formative years of flyways? What can you tell us about those years? Well, it, it certainly did, Mike, but I think one of the most notable things about this is that while waterfowl, because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, jurisdiction over waterfowl was vested within the, the federal governments of, of Canada and the United States and Mexico, but the initiative to move towards a more coordinated effort to manage waterfowl on a flyaway basis came from the states. As Dale pointed out, some of these states initiated forming these groups of people to look at specific problems in their geographic area among states uh, before uh, we ever had formally established the flyway system. So I think it's really important to point out that, that while it's federal jurisdiction, the initiative that ultimately led to the 
formation of flyaways and even the formal action that was taken by the International Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies in 1951 to solidify this was initiated by state fish and wildlife agencies. So I think we it's important to point out the important role even uh, 70 years ago that the states played was was paramount. One other thing that I think is worth mentioning at this stage is that, uh, uh, again, moving back into the 30s, uh, More Game Birds for America, the, the forerunner of Ducks Unlimited, conducted the first long-term uh, survey of waterfowl on the, the breeding grounds. And it was the development of waterfowl surveys that became more formalized in the 50s that began during the late, 40s, the late 30s and on into the 40s to give us at least some idea of, of, of where these birds were where they nested, as they started to migrate, where did they go, that laid the groundwork for us moving into this, uh, this flyway system that uh, continues today to serve. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. It's very well, in my opinion. Ken, this is probably a useful time to explain to our listeners in a very rudimentary sense at this point uh, how the states and the federal government interact with setting harvest regulations. We've talked repeatedly about federal jurisdiction of this resource, but now we're talking about the formalization of a process by which the states can have some input in that. For those that may not be as familiar with with the flyway administrative system, just you know, kind of frame that up for us. And it's not as though the state, like the federal government, doesn't have to do what the states say. It's not like that. But it's a it's sort, of, sort of an advisory, collaborative advisory capacity uh, or, or opportunity for the states to engage in the management of this resource. So just in a rudimentary fashion, frame that up for us and the, the important role of these administrative flyways. Probably need to start with the very basic foundation of flyways, and that is that there are four flyways that uh, waterfowl are managed uh, under. Uh, the Pacific Flyway, obviously, for the western part of the of the continent, and the Atlantic Flyway for the eastern part of the continent. The Mississippi Flyway, which basically follows the drainage of the Mississippi River, and then the Central Flyway, which lies between the Pacific Flyway and the, and the Mississippi Flyway, and kind of covers the Great Plains area and the and the, the, the eastern part of the Rocky Mountain Range. So that's the, the basic setup in terms of how these flyways operate. Within each of those flyways, each state that's in each of those councils has a representative. And uh, those representatives are named by the individual states. And they convene for meetings a couple of times a year to talk about whatever the issues are facing waterfowl and waterfowl hunters uh, uh, during that that time. Very early on, uh, and I think, again, it showed some great understanding of, of needs with regard to the flyway councils, there were technical sections that were, that were created. These were made up of the waterfowl biologists from the respective states within each of the four flyways, and they, in turn, made their recommendations and, and their input into the 
into the to the flyway councils. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service very early on in this process designated individuals for each of these four flyways that would serve as the representative to the flyway councils from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So the connection between the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that ultimately has the final jurisdiction over waterfowl regulations, uh, that connection between the service and the flyway councils was established very early on. And flyway councils discuss their recommendations, issues that are important to them, and they in turn take these recommendations from the councils, representing the actions of the council to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service by way of the Service Regulations Committee, which is made up by, of people from each of the regional offices across the United States. So it's a, it's a, a fairly uh, a rigorous review process uh, where there is ample opportunity for states to provide input to the process. The ultimate decisions are made by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And Dale, is it is it fair to say that the federal government always agrees with the recommendations of the states? <laughs> uh, certainly. Uh, <laughs> no. I say that um, tongue in cheek. We obviously know that's not the case. But talk about that a little bit. You know, it's uh, it is this opportunity for the, the states to provide input on what they would like to see. But then ultimately, the the federal government has to make those decisions, and so there is a natural push pull to uh, to those discussions, right? There always has been, Mike, and even more broadly than that, as you might imagine, um, there's no disagreement among hunters on this side of the river versus that side of the river. So within the hunting clientele, uh, there's not agreement on season dates and bag limits and structures of seasons and the like. Um, certainly there's a disagreement within flyway from north to south, from east to west, and among flyways, as you might imagine, um, the Pacific Flyway that enjoys one set of recommendations is different in their philosophical view, their um, administrative and technical application, than are those biologists in the central Mississippi or Atlantic flyways. And so just by the nature of waterfowl and waterfowl management, waterfowl distribution, uh, there's a an apparent inequity in their distribution, and that gives rise to a fair amount of consternation, uh, disagreement, um, argument, whatever, uh, debate, whatever you want to call it, um, every single year and certainly across uh, the decades, uh, some as well. Certainly, there's disagreement between the um, federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and the states. The Fish and Wildlife Service has the ultimate responsibility uh, for seeing the individual states or even portions within flyways, um, uh, how those come together. And so they have a responsibility for oversight, um, certainly. Uh, folks in an individual state, folks in an individual flyway, see things more through the lens of what affects them than perhaps at the federal level. So it, it's no surprise that there's a, a certain perception of inequity, a certain perception of uh, differences in responsibility from federal to state, from state to local, uh, and across flyways. 
Dale, some of those differences that you talked about in both in terms of waterfowl populations and their distribution and abundance across the continent, as well as the number of people hunting those began, my understanding uh, is they began to give rise to some some of the differences in regulations that exist uh, across the four flyways. One of the most notable that our hunters are probably going to be familiar with are is differences in season length between the Pacific and the Central Flyway, or just, let's just say across the flyways, uh, the Pacific Flyway is known to have the, um, the the longest season. And of course, the, the Mississippi and, and Central and some uh, most years are going to have, uh, well, in Atlantic are going to have some of the, uh, you know, the, the shortest, you might say. But uh, those differences in season lengths begin to emerge in the late 1940s. Uh, and again, that pattern that I generally described where the longest season length typically occurs in the Pacific Flyway was it, it held true back then. And Mississippi and, Atlant- uh, Mississippi and Atlantic Flyways had the shortest season lengths. So talk about that a little bit in terms of you know, the thinking behind that. This is really when it started to emerge and we get that question a lot. Why are there differences in season lengths between the flyways? Uh, so let's let's speak to that a bit if you could, Dale. In the roughest and most superficial sense, if we look at the uh, numbers of birds harvested by flyway, the rate at which they're harvested given numbers of hunters and bird availability and so on, uh, they account for the most liberal regulations of the Pacific, where the rate at which the birds that um, migrate to that part of the world um, is roughly comparable to the rate at which birds are taken in the central Mississippi and Atlantic flyways. Um, in order to see that level of comparability, uh, season lengths and bag limits from flyway to flyway um, are, again, very roughly um, uh, uh, equal, um, and equal being a term here that's probably uh, poorly applied. But from flyway to flyway, there's roughly um, a consistent opportunity to harvest the rate at which birds are taken from flyway to flyway. Ken, anything to add uh, Anything to add to that? Yeah, I'd, I'd add this, and, and, uh, and I would certainly welcome Dale's thoughts in terms of this. But one of the things that I think is important in this is that if if you look, and, and let's take the Pacific Flyway that historically has had the more liberal uh, seasons in terms of length and bag limits, if you look at the breeding habitat, the breeding habitat that supplies birds for that flyway probably has been least impacted in terms of conversion of habitat to other uses than in other areas. That's not to say that there's not been issues with regard to habitat uh, destruction. But if you get into the central and Mississippi flyways where you're looking at the prairies as being the primary source of waterfowl migrating into those flyways, and you look at the changes in those prairies due mostly to conversion of those lands to agriculture production, then I think it's uh, it's more necessary from the standpoint of restricting regulations uh, to keep that in mind to counter the habitat loss that has occurred. And then if you move on into the to the Atlantic Flyway, in some areas it's even worse. Uh, uh, it's not the prairies, but it's it's areas where timber harvest and things like that have had an impact on habitat for species like black ducks, for instance, which has always been a concern for the Atlantic Flyway. So, and, and again, uh, I think as our knowledge of waterfowl has evolved over the years, 
we've had a better understanding of that. But uh, I mean, Dale talked about the about the harvest rates being very comparable among the flyways, but in my opinion, a lot of that is related to the impacts of habitat changes on the primary nesting areas among the flyways. Dale, does that uh, does that resonate with some of the conversations that you had through the years in terms of how those some of those differences were were characterized and considered? I think it's important to consider all the way back to the Migratory Bird Treaty. Uh, language in the treaty basically says authorized and directed from time to time, having due regard for the zones of temperature and the distribution, abundance, economic value, breeding habitats, and times and lines and migratory flights of such birds. So basically, um, a century ago, there was an acknowledgement that there were likely going to be differences from region to region, from nation to nation, and so on. Um, a lot of these things are established um, and then um, become the basis uh, for the long-term establishment of regulations from region to region. And uh, so I don't think folks disagree necessarily um, whether or not there's time to revisit some of those assumptions going forward. Uh, I don't know. But certainly the basis uh, is, uh, is how we operate now from flyway to flyway. Dale, some of your research leading up to this in the document that you shared revealed something that uh, that I was not aware of, but uh, you always share documents. You're able to find information that it seems like no one else is able to, and I'm not sure how you do, <laughs> you do that, but it's pretty remarkable, and I thank you for it. At 1948, you identify as one of the early, one of the first times when it was acknowledged that the opinions and desires of hunters needs to be factored in and it's explicitly need to be you know, factored in or were factored in into certain decisions related to waterfowl harvest regulations as we all we as hunters all know that um, the season length and bag limits daily bag limits are two of the, the key pieces of harvest regulations that can be you know that that um, as we know them today and as they've changed through the years but what did those early surveys find that early feedback maybe it wasn't a survey but it was some feedback provided by hunters in some way that began to indicate a preference for one of those over the other what can you tell about tell us about that well, i think that's a really good point mike um the key to um the transition that we made in the late 1940s from pretty much federal oversight period in terms of waterfowl regulations and so on to a shared responsibility with the states gave rise to the opportunity for the flyway states, uh, for individual regions to offer thoughts about um, waterfowl management and so on. And that's where you begin to see some of the local um, or regional influence. Um, uh, in that particular instance, in the late 1940s, um, one of the comments made in, in one of the documents I saw was that according to comments made by the majority of the people who attended the series of public waterfowl meetings recently held throughout the country, they preferred to have longer hunting seasons rather than an increase in bag limits. Thus, in 1949 and 50, um, it, the, the seasons that were put in place reflected that preference. So it's kind of interesting that that late 40s, early 50s were the period of time when you started because the flyways were involved, the states were involved, began to see the influence of regional or local preferences for season length, bag limit. Of course, the challenge that emerges then is, okay, how are you going to establish regulations that reflect those differences in preferences? 
Dale, I want us to start wrapping this episode up with uh, a couple of comments about uh, season lengths and bag limits back in those eras. That's a common question. It's a common point of discussion, imagining what uh, what things were like in the good old days. And it seemed like any time uh, prior to the 60s would, would have been viewed as seems to be viewed as a good old day, but that's not certainly not not the case as our historical records indicate. When we go back to your uh, your research here in 1949, the Mississippi and Atlantic Flyway had a 40-day season uh, or a split of 16 days each during a 32-day season. The Central Flyway had a 45-day season, the option of a 45-day season or a split of 18 days in each of two splits. Pacific Flyway, 50 days or a split of 20 days in each of two splits. Uh, during that that same year, wood ducks, the season on wood ducks was closed in selected states, uh, and we had a bag limit of one in others. The uh, season on Ross's geese was, was closed in 1949. And I'm uh, looking at bag limits here. looks like a bag limit of four and a daily bag limit of four and a possession limit of eight in the Atlantic and Mississippi flyways, uh, five per day and a possession limit of 10 in the Pacific flyway states. Uh, and then here, kind of Ken, speaking to some of what you were talking about earlier in that same year, the central flyway, due to adverse conditions on the breeding grounds, bag limits were reduced from five to four. So back in the late 1940s, we were we were dealing with bag limits and, day, and season lengths that were more restrictive than what we see today. So is there anything that we need to take away from that, Dale, in terms of uh, what, how we might consider what is uh, and is not a good old day? Kind of the bottom line, and not to be uh, flippant about this, mind you, is, is that um, waterfall biologists have always been pretty creative when it came to regulations. Um, and during that period of time, and, and it actually continued for a few decades afterwards, we made an attempt to equate days and bag limits, shooting hours, splits and zones and any number of different um, management techniques um, to try to um, equalize, if you will, the relative influence of days versus bag limits or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't fault those early efforts with regard to regulations and bag limits, season lengths, uh, shooting hours, whatever they might be. Um, it would be very easy to look back uh, a few decades and say, what were those guys thinking uh, when it came to regulations? The fact is that they were willing to try things to document and to measure the impact of various regulations and the like. And that sets us up here decades later for uh, seasons that um, are relatively stable, a fair amount different um, than what they were historically and fairly consistent compared to what they might have been historically. So I wouldn't fault what folks did early on. The fact is that we uh, put those in place, we measured the outcome, we were willing to change based on what we learned. Ken, any final comments from you on those uh, on these early years, the formative years of the flyway councils, and any of the regulations that came about in those early years? Well, I think I think Dale nailed it really quite well. But I just would summarize it by saying that. Uh, the people who were managing harvest at that time, and again, uh, reflect back that uh, the one thing that uh, you can do, at least based on the knowledge of the day, to control populations was to control harvest. And uh, the elements of controlling harvest were, were bag limits, how many ducks you can shoot on a given day, how many days you can shoot those ducks, and what time of day. And 
uh, I, I think they utilize that. I think later on, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later on, where all of the data that was gathered during this period was analyzed very, very critically by a person at the University of Missouri by the name of Dr. Gary Krause, who was a statistician, not a, a wildlife person. And basically, from those data, we came to learn that it's really days that shoot ducks and that bag limits have very little to do with that. That's why today you don't see some of the options that uh, that were given during that time frame of, you know, you can have more days if you have fewer ducks in the bag. Uh, you don't see opening days uh, uh, being at noon on opening day to deal with some of those things. So, again, I, I think uh, as each decade has gone by and as we have learned uh, more about the dynamics of waterfowl harvest, the dynamics of waterfowl biology, waterfowl life cycles. Uh, as Dale said, we're creative and, and, and we make changes. But during that time, don't fault those folks. Those are the tools they had to work with. They were doing it in good faith to sustain waterfowl populations. And who's to say that the efforts that they took in those days didn't give us the populations that we have to work with or at least lay some groundwork for that? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And thank you for pointing that out. Thanks to both of you for pointing that out. Certainly, they are the pioneers of this field, and we owe all of them a debt of gratitude for for uh, laying the foundation as they did. This takes us into the 1950s. We're going to wrap up this episode, and we're going to try to speed through the next couple of decades here and get to the time periods whenever you guys actually uh, became more active in the flyways. And I know you have a lot of stories, that entertaining stories, uh, I think, that you can <laughs> share with us regarding some of those some of those times. But but uh, there were some significant events in the 1950s, not the least of which was the Breeding Population Survey getting off the ground uh, officially. That's certainly a, a very important point in uh, time in the history of waterfowl management. And so we'll we'll pick up there on the next episode. So thanks to, to both you guys for continuing to share your insights and expertise on this uh, really remarkable and, and fascinating story about waterfowl harvest management. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure, Mike. Thank you, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. They they both bring firsthand experience and knowledge about, about this process, and we thank them for joining us. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, the digital warrior for the great job that he does. And of course, the listeners, we thank you for spending your time with us here on the podcast, supporting the podcast, and most importantly, for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.